Hi, I'm Mark Harrigan. And I'm Jana Bartiewicz. And this is day four of the isolation pod. And perhaps slightly narcissistically, the starting point for today was the fact that I feel quite tired and I felt quite tired for some time. Not exhaustion by any means, very far from it, but a kind of low-level fatigue akin to being chronically sleep-deprived despite the fact that I'm sleeping quite a lot. And there are many ways we could explain this, and I promise that we're going to move on from me being tired soon. It's just an awkward narrative device to start the episode. One is cortisol, that neurophysiologically we could explain how when living in a time of crisis, there's a constant sense of neurophysiological agitation, which after the immediate crescendo of anxiety has descended into a mundane persistence of locked our lockdown lives, then this is something that is fundamentally agitating, it's fundamentally tiring. But while I don't want to dismiss this explanation, I do think it's limited. In Ian McEwan's latest book, which I was reading last night, there was a description of something being akin to trying to understand the poem by counting the number of words in it. And the hermeneutic sociologist in me instinctively sees this with cortisol. It's clearly part of a comprehensive picture, but this does not explain why I am tired. Yeah, but do you think that the experience of stress is reducible also by way of description to cortisol or, for that matter, the excretion of any other hormone? Well, if we see the relationship between mind states and brain states, then presumably the mind states are physically instantiated in some way. And so what seems obvious to me is the causal question. Is the cortisol in some sense causing you, causing me to become tired over time? Or is it just a manifestation of the fact I am tired and the process is taking place elsewhere? Yeah, I guess that's the the mental state's chicken and egg problem, right? <laughs> I mean, I've always been of the opinion that, and this may be the anthropologist in me, uh, that there is some value in analyzing things in terms of the, the language of the biophysical, not least because I think that for a lot of reasons, um, social scientists tend to be sort of reluctant to do that, in part because of the association of biophysical states with some sort of biological determinism. And I think that left us to a great degree, first of all, incapable of speaking both languages, so to speak, but also on a more mundane note, often sort of woefully undereducated about the bodily, uh, for want of a better term, right? So, so f- about what would otherwise fall under the domain of biology. Well, don't get me wrong, there's a certain kind of social constructivist hostility to invocations of the biological that I think, thankfully, is descending into non-existence at this stage. And one thing I found myself thinking about in the last few weeks is the extent to which there has been a convergence between new forms of realism which in spite of the many differences between them, so speculative realism, new materialism, agential realism, critical realism, very different in a lot of ways, but they do share an appreciation of 
non-social processes, and particularly the causal character of processes that are not social. But my caution is not ontological as much as it is epistemological. I have no problem whatsoever with the idea that we have to invoke physical states to explain how and why human beings act in the way that they do. What I am cautious about is how these are introduced into putative social explanations, and particularly how they're introduced by non-experts in the field in question. I agree, but not to play devil's advocate, but maybe yes to play devil's advocate, just for the sake of it. What is the difference between saying, you know, I'm exhausted, to put it somewhat simplifiedly, um, I'm exhausted because of neoliberalism and I'm exhausted because of PMS. I mean, both are putative explanations that attribute either causality or correlation or broader framing to something that is a diagnostic, you know, a diagnostic state, right? So neoliberalism is basically saying there is this order um, set of structural relations, positions of power that mean that, for instance, I, as an individual, am expected to perform at a relatively high and consistently higher, ever higher level, uh, and, and so on and so forth, combined with other things, uh, which we could also name differently, I am exhausted. Uh, and saying I'm exhausted because of PMS is saying there is this relationship, again, between different factors, some of which are biological, some of which are obviously social, including gender, uh, that mean that in this particular time of the month or time of the menstrual cycle, I am exhausted. Well, there's a kind of equal and opposing problem to you know, the spectra of biological reductionism. Uh, in Rosie Bradotti's book, I think it was in the post-human, or it might have been a post-human knowledge. I read them side by side, so I'm getting them mixed up. She has a section about neoliberalism and exhaustion, which through my work on acceleration is a topic that I'm fascinated by and I think is important. But in the space of a page, she ascribes exhaustion to neoliberalism without any real explanation of how that happens. She takes the empirical identification of the experience that people label as exhaustion without really engaging with the vast and complicated literature on this and ascribes it to neoliberalism. And to me, that's as problematic as saying you're exhausted because of cortisol. So, I mean, I, I, I take your point and the question, if I understand it correctly, and the question is how we then excavate this much more complex terrain, which necessarily transgresses disciplinary boundaries. And if we're asking how we do that, one thing I suggest is that we do it cautiously. And that's all I'm saying. Well, I mean, to me, as, as someone, you know, who, who has always been interested in the social life of concepts, regardless, or perhaps especially if these concepts are have a theoretical or a diagnostic status, uh, that includes neoliberalism, the more interesting question or an equally interesting question is, you know, what work do they do? So why do we feel the need to invoke something? And what does invoking something do? It's good you mentioned that because I could almost feel anyone even vaguely Wittgensteinian listening to this, getting ever more frustrated that we got this far into the conversation without addressing that question. 
You mean without mentioning Wittgenstein? Well, that's a bad too. Sorry. Yeah, we are very sorry. And by the way, I'm looking forward to, this is, I guess, uh, by way of plugging it, although I haven't read any of the articles yet, but how the Journal of um, Ethnographic Theory has a special issue on Wittgenstein. So I'm super happy about that. Well, that should be very interesting. But the last conversation I had about that journal was about a very different set of issues related to that journal, which we should probably not yeah. go into. But I'm now very curious to see how that's all panned out because I've not thought about it for a while and don't know what's been happening since. But I mean, in answer to that question of what work it does, um, I don't have a clear enough sense of an imagined audience for our podcast to really have this meaningfully be directed at the audience. It's possible on some level I'm telling you that I'm tired and, you know, wanting to express the fact that I'm madly suffering. But I think it's more analytical. I want to understand that feeling of being tired. I think one thing that it does tell us about and one of the things that experiences of exhaustion and tiredness since the start of the lockdown have been pointing out is actually the surprise at being tired because... Ostensibly, most of the things that make people like ourselves, who are, you know, sort of white, middle class, relatively privileged, relatively comfortable, and so on and so forth, tired under so-called normal circumstances, are now more or less absent, right? We don't have to go to work. There are no long commutes anywhere. There's no travel. Uh, there is relatively little pressure to, you know, um, finish papers, write grants, and so on and so forth. So I think one of the reasons why people started bringing this up was because, at least, again, to some people, and the, being very mindful of the fact that that's neither the case for people who are essential workers, nor for people who have children at home, nor for people who have serious gang duties, and so on and so forth, presumably they should be less tired rather than more tired. But I've often felt that there's a kind of Lacanian point to be made about that expectation. The belief, which I think is very common in academics, or at least I've noticed it in myself and people around me, that if only I kind of get to the bottom of my inbox, if only I kind of get these items off the to-do list, if only I get these papers out of the way, then I'll be able to live my life fully and authentically. And it's that sense of being on the cusp of everything being ordered in the way it's supposed to be. And then your life is really as it is. And this disguises the fact that actually your life is about catching up. Your life is about rushing. And the rushing serves a particular psychic purpose for you. And the expectation that once these external causes of rushing or, again, the huge caveat that for anyone with children or significant caring responsibilities, for instance, the life has become intensified. So, But leaving that aside, because I think it is an interesting point, there's the expectation that you will no longer have to rush. And actually, I feel I'm often rushing, despite objectively having incredibly fortuitous and privileged lockdown circumstances. There's certainly something to be said about this romantic myth of, and I'm romantic as in romanticist, historically romantic, um, myth of authenticity, right? This is the idea that, to which I'm quite sympathetic, to be quite honest, 
that has been later transpo- transposed into existentialism, which is that hell is other people. So absent other people, you are by definition in heaven, right? So absent constraints generated by the social, uh, you should be, again, less tired or at least um, you should feel freer. And as I said, I am personally very sympathetic to this. This, to a great degree, corresponds to how I experience um, daily and not only daily life pre and, and during lockdown. But I'm fully aware of the fact, you know, of, of what you've just said, that for a lot of people, that is not exactly the case, that a lot of people actually experience the absence of content as something that's possibly deeply, you know, deeply disturbing, deeply harmful. Uh, well, one useful concept you find in the acceleration literature is uh, intensification. And... I tend to use this in a very particular way um, to refer specifically to the the quantity of things you have to do in the time available to do them. So if you have to do more in the same amount of time, then that's an intensification. And so if you have significant caring responsibilities, if you're now homeschooling your kids, then lockdown necessarily involves an intensification. If you don't have those responsibilities, then it would be a declining intensification and that's what i don't understand ah well i think this is one point where we disagree at last because to me it seems as if almost regardless of what your personal experience is lockdown is always an an intensification of your daily life and I just want to be clear because um, I think it's very easy to to sort of be misunderstood about this. I think that even if you do not have obligations that are recognized as exceptional or ex- exceptionally demanding, that for most people, lockdown is basically their life amplified. So work amplified, uh, relationships amplified but without the elements you know without the thing that sweetens it without the elements that take the edge off without the kind of additions that allow us to forget how often meaningless and painful the not to again sound a bit you know too existentialist about this though perhaps I am you know, the experience of existing is, how meaningless life is. Well, I mean, another way of looking at this would be in terms of ontological security and the difficulty in, you know, erecting a kind of protective cocoon around ourselves in our experience and acting as if the world isn't full of threats, as if the world isn't as, you know, Buddhism has been saying for thousands of years, made of suffering. And I think it's very difficult to do this in lockdown. And one of the reasons I like that Zizek extract we talked about last week so much is that I took him to be pointing towards the necessity of some kind of protective cocoon just to help you through this kind of experience. But wouldn't that sort of protective cocoon, in a manner of speaking, be just an illusion, be a way of refusing or avoiding to face how brutal life actually and I mean life on the contemporary capitalism is because one of the things that have 
been obvious to me since the start of the lockdown is how many people are actually fundamentally reliant on clearly deeply exploitative structures in their daily lives whilst often being openly very opposed to these structures. To give you an example, right? So relying, for instance, on Amazon for deliveries, right? I mean, most of us have had at least one thing delivered by Amazon in the course of the lockdown and probably before that as well, right? Most of us would probably, I mean, us, right? People that we are usually talking about in this context. Most of us would probably say, oh no, you know, sort of, exploitative digital labor is wrong. Um, These companies have terrible employment practices and so on and so forth. So what does that tell us about the relationship between, again, for want of a better term, knowing about something and not participating in something? I I don't know. I mean, I've I've heard you make the argument before. And to be honest, I do see it as a kind of anti-consumerist rather than anti-capitalist politics. I mean, the issue is the social organization of labor. In general, it's not the particular form it takes. And specifically under the conditions of lockdown, I mean, if online shopping allows you to make less trips to physical shops, that is a positive thing from both a public health and a workers' rights situation, because the interactions involved in online shopping are relatively limited compared to those that take place when you go to a shop. But you see, this is what we disagree on. Interactions in terms of online shopping are relatively limited on the end user end. So you don't even have to speak to the person who is handing in your package. They will take a few steps back from the door and so on and so forth. That doesn't mean that involves fewer interactions in the process of getting that package to you, except that obviously that element remains invisible to you as the end user, you know, as the end consumer. So in that sense, it's not a it's not an anti-consumerist argument as much as it's an epistemological argument, which is, you know, it's not a question of where is there more suffering or, you know, sort of the, the suffering Olympics, right? What kind of practice is more exploitative as if ordering them, you know, giving a ranking of exploitation will somehow vindicate the marginally less exploitative practices. It's noticing that we are fully able to criticize those practices whilst being able to engage in them. And to me, that is literally what stains capitalism or the world as we know it or whatever else you want to call it. So it's not a critique of consumerism. It is, in fact, the critique of status quo. Okay, well, firstly, um, let's not get bogged down in this and perhaps we can have this exchange in writing because it is... uh secondary to what we'd intended to talk about. But I just think empirically it's not true to say that the supply chain has an equivalent number of contacts. And if we could have a kind of longer exchange about that, I can explain why I think that isn't the case. Neither of us are experts in supply chains, but from my understanding of Amazon's supply chain in particular, for one thing, it's heavily automated. And the number of human encounters involved in an Amazon supply chain compared to, say, the supply chain for co-op, I think is very different. But the kind of broader point you're making, well, I think it is an anti-consumerist standpoint, because you literally just said that capitalism stands or falls based on consumer behavior. And, you know, at many levels, not least for the philosophy of science, I find that implausible. 
I find enormous value in your perspective on this and your work on this, particularly in relation to critiques of neoliberalism within the university and outside of, and the philosophical point being made by that, I find enormously insightful. It's just the last step of your argument I'm not convinced by. Which is that somehow I'm saying that capitalism stands or falls based on consumer behavior. Well, I, I think you're too sophisticated to say that, but I think I can take the final claim you made and articulate it in those terms and not have misrepresented you. Even if but you I, think like you, I, think, I think you would have. I mean, there is a difference between saying, look, the only reason why capitalism is here is because people buy stuff, which is not what I'm saying, and saying one of the reasons why there is no efficient resistance to capitalism today is because most people have no choice but to buy stuff. So these two are not equal statements. And for me, it's really important to draw a distinction between them. Okay, whereas I think the second statement is a very sophisticated version of the first statement. But it's not. One that, is, you know, kind of uh, polemically no. is the same, serves the same function. It isn't. One is historical, the other is analytical. One is diachronous, the other is synchronous. But, you know, you persuaded me when we've had debates about this in the past in terms of the environmental importance of consumer behaviour, um, because my objection to that point had tended to be analytical simply because I don't think you can generate structural change by aggregating upwards from individual decisions. But these are not individual decisions. I feel as if, if I may sort of say something mildly provocative, there is a remnant of the sort of late 1980s, early 1990s cultural studies critique or understanding of consumption in what you're saying. So for me, consumer behavior is not one element of this beautiful assemblage of culture or society that we do. Everything that we do is consumption. One way or another, Hannah Arendt, for instance, in The Human Condition, has a fantastic analysis of the distinction between labor as the sort of material production of things to be consumed, work as something that is supposedly supervenient on this, uh, and action. And to me, in that sense, there is no life without consumption and without production production for consumption. It's not as if you can say, well, you know, I'm a consumer for two hours of my life or my day, and then I'm a non-consumer, the rest. Everything that we do is intermediated, interspersed with consumption. Well, this brings us back to the start, really, because I feel not similarly about your account of consumption as I do to someone saying that I feel tired because I've got elevated levels of cortisol and have for some time. Um, and your broad point, I mean, I agree with, I guess. I mean, I, I think if pushed, I'd frame consumption in terms of commoditization. But this, so consumption is what happens when commodities are required. But this is my point. Consumption doesn't have to include commoditization. Think about consuming food, right? So 
in a lot of contexts, the consumption of food does not involve only commodities. For instance, preparing food, the thing that has been traditionally or a form of labor that has been traditionally gendered in all sorts of ways. Think about, say, forms of cultural consumption where the fact that you are able to have two hours to watch a film that you've rented from, you know, Amazon uh, is due to the fact that someone somewhere prepared a meal that is now for you defrostable in a microwave so you don't have to spend two hours making it and so on and so forth. I mean, we, we could take this, you know, kind of very, very far in terms of resources and say, well, you know, you're consuming air as well. But to me, this really kind of puts the emphasis back onto the way in which humans are really interspersed with what traditionally sociology used to think about as the material world, right? So consumption isn't only what happens in the shop, regardless of whether it's an online shop or a real shop. Okay, well, I mean, it's a bit of a straw man to say that I'm saying consumption is only what happens in the shop. But, you know, one of the many reasons I have a problem with this is that it leaves no outside to consumption. Um, and, I mean, if we want to talk about this, I'm happy to use a different term for what you're calling consumption, because I mean the consumption of commodities. And I think to analyse consumption in terms of the commodity form is useful because it uh, ensures that our analysis of everyday practices are tied into analysis of capitalism. But the overarching point I wanted to make by comparing this to cortisol is the kind of Danny Miller comfort of things type point, because there's a kind of semantic violence at work to the, well, you can't put it better than the title of that book, the comfort of things, the meanings things hold for people. And, you know, I wouldn't want to inflate this into a general theory of commodities. And I think that would be entirely contrary to the, the, the spirit of the book. But I think we do need to, to recognize that. Yes, but I think recognizing it is one thing. Saying, and thus, it is justified is another. Take the equivalent, emotional labor. Sure, there is, I'm certain that there is a lot of comfort in, you know, being hugged, being comforted, being, I don't know, told that everything is going to be all right, and so on and so forth. Um, having someone listen to you, having someone hold your feelings. But that doesn't change the fact that, at least in some cases, that kind of labor is traditionally associated with or tended to fall on women and that that is a thing that's in and of itself unequal. But an emancipatory politics necessitates being able to draw that distinction, at least in principle. And I think a similar point applies to consumption. The you know We need to be able to account for, at the very least, what is an amelioration of problems or things we find problematic. Why? I mean, if I were sort of an American millennial, I will now I would now tell you that's a very liberal point. I mean, why do we need to recognize that life with commodities is better than life without commodities? I don't mean this in a facetious manner. I think recognizing that life with commodities or life outside of you know sort of circle of suffering is better than life inside the circle of suffering or better than life without commodities implicitly validates the process of bringing those commodities about. 
But if I may offer an interpretation, my suspicion is that in rejecting a deeply problematic dichotomy of nature and culture or the material and the social, and you know, kind of becoming deeply attentive and sophisticated and attending to the hybridization of them and their inevitable and avoidable entanglement, you are not accepting there are other ways of theorizing that entanglement. Because I don't think I'm making the argument that you're saying that I'm making, but you're also making me realize that I'm not very clear about the argument I'm making, because this is something I don't really think about that much. But I guess my instincts are, you know, kind of along Bev Skeg's lines of, you know, the value beyond value. And, you know, if we collapse all value into exchange, if we collapse all consumptive activity into consumption of commodities, unless we can draw these distinctions, then we do miss out on important things. Well, I guess my question is the inverse of that, which is saying, and why is it so important that we do not collapse these distinctions? Um, well, I mean, it's a similar kind of issue, I think, to the kind of familiar critique of Foucault, that, I mean, if power is everywhere, then what do we do about it? Well, one of my familiar responses to the familiar critique of Foucault that if power is everywhere, then power is nowhere, is does that make it a non-useful concept? Well, to draw to a close, I can say I feel less tired than I did half an hour ago. And I'm pleased about that. So thank you. Well, I'm very happy to hear that.